Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Body Justice. I started this podcast because I believe that all bodies are good bodies. All bodies are deserving, worthy, and all bodies are whole, just as they are. In today's world, it's ever hard to embody this as our truth. My mission is to create a space to process body image, eating disorders, and relationships through a justice-oriented lens. I'm a licensed therapist in California and an eating disorder survivor myself. I know what it's like to be at war with myself and also to find peace again. Thank you for being here and I look forward to being your host. Hey everyone, welcome back to Body Justice. We are on episode 35 so amazing. Um, Never thought I would have a podcast, let alone have so many episodes. So I'm just excited how much you all are loving it and how many people I've been able to reach with these messages. So if you'd like to help me with my mission of getting these messages out to people that really need them, I would really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple. This helps the algorithm push it out to more people the more reviews I get. So please take a moment to do that if you've been enjoying this show. Today we're going to talk about trauma again um, from a little bit different of a lens. So last episode we talked about complex trauma and we're going to go into that a little more here too. But specifically we're talking about relational trauma today, um, how attachment trauma and eating disorder recovery are combined. And I have a wonderful colleague here, um, Rebecca. Perlman. She's an associate marriage and family therapy here, uh, marriage and family therapist, sorry, in San Diego. Um, and she specializes in these, the intersection of these two, um, two issues. So she really takes a attachment and relational focus when she works with clients with the eating disorders. And we're going to hear about that in the NARMA model. So definitely go give her a follow on Instagram. Um, you can find all of that in the link in my show notes. So I'll let her go ahead and introduce herself here in just a moment. Um, Also, as always, go find me on Instagram if you haven't already at bodyjustice.therapist. You can go to the link in my bio and access my online self-paced recovery course. This will give you all the tools and tips that I use to help clients recover from eating disorders. It's not a replacement for therapy, but it does provide a lot of education to help you gain those tools and skills. Um, I think what sets my course apart from others is that number one, I'm an eating disorder therapist, but also a personal survivor. Um, I also have a chapter in there on social justice and how that influences eating disorders, which I don't see talked about enough, although I do see things changing, which is wonderful. So without further ado, let's talk to Rebecca. All right, Becca, um, could you tell listeners a little bit about you, how you identify, and what you're passionate about? Yeah, so uh, my name is Rebecca. I identify as a white queer um, woman, uh, use she, her pronouns, and um, passionate about, my goodness, um, I'm definitely passionate about healing. Um really passionate about helping people like 
started with my own journey of learning this and then helping others heal what's underneath their symptoms um, mm -hmm. so that they can find true relief and agency um, in their lives instead of just coping mechanisms. I'm really passionate about helping people reconnect to themselves and experience that healing. Mm -hmm. I love that. And that's when, one reason I really wanted you to come on Body Justice is because I love connecting with other clinicians that want to get to the root of pain and suffering and not just looking at like coping skills or kind of symptom reduction, right? Like that's important, but also if we don't get to the root, that symptom reduction probably won't last. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Um, it can help in the short run, but it, I've seen in myself and others that it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Agreed. How did you get interested in working with eating disorders and complex trauma? Yeah, so they um, went together a little bit. So I have um, my own history of eating disorder. I am recovered um, from binge eating disorder. Mm -hmm. um, it was never formally diagnosed, mm -hmm. uh, but I was given um, what I found to be pretty unhelpful <laughs> guidance around food and eating. Um, and I also have watched, I had quite a few loved ones in my life at different times, really struggling with eating disorders. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was actually in a relationship with someone at one point who um, was in treatment for an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, I had done a lot of work on myself where I was, I was sustainable. I was, um, it wasn't fully recovered, but I was doing much better. Mm -hmm. And I was watching her go through treatment and it, um, it felt like something was missing. It, I was watching uh, her really have a hard time and I wasn't quite understanding what was going on. And as I kept start, really started my own healing journey, and I learned that I have a lot of complex trauma, um, a lot of my symptoms, my anxiety. I would have these really big, um, like crying spells and just lots of emotions and would have like knee jerk trigger reactions that this was all symptoms of complex trauma. Yeah. I started to notice that my eating was very responsive to ruptures that were happening within attachment relationships. Mm -hmm. And that fascinated me. It was confusing. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand why it was harder to eat when I was upset with someone I was attached to. Um, and then eating was easier when things were okay. And mm -hmm. in grad school, we were given a, in my grad school, we, we were only talked about eating disorders for one hour, my entire mm -hmm. grad school, which Same. I think is a problem um, in this profession. But I was lucky that the article we were given to read about eating disorders was all about the connection between attachment wounding and eating disorders. And it resonated so deeply with me and created this really deep curiosity to know more. And I was resonating with myself of like, oh, I have all this attachment wounding from this complex trauma. It makes sense that I've struggled with eating disorders. Um, 
And so for my trauma class, I did my research paper on the connection between complex trauma and eating disorders. Okay. And that was a fascinating discovery and in-depth exploration at, at the connection between attachment regulation and the shame identifications that come as a result of complex trauma and eating disorders. Yes. Oh my gosh. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I can relate so much with my own past struggle and like make, looking back and making the connections when I was like avoidant with food in a more restrictive phase, I was also really avoidant in my relationships and attachment. Mm -hmm. And then at times when food felt chaotic, my relationships were also chaotic. Like mm -hmm. our relationship with food really mirrors our relationship with ourselves and others. Mm -hmm. It is really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's extremely fascinating mm -hmm. that food has this component of affect regulation mm -hmm. to it. Um, that way, if we restrict, we are less connected to our own internal feelings and affect. Mm -hmm. And all of that is so connected to our own connection with ourselves and how connecting to ourselves is so impacted by the safety of our relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh my gosh. This is already such a good conversation. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot lately about attachment styles and how it relates to the recovery process and, and eating and stuff. And yeah, you're right. There is such an affect regulation component. And I don't, we don't consciously go into it thinking I'm going to, turn off my emotions so that I cannot connect with others. It's so unconscious. It's just such a protective mechanism. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, what I also noticed within myself is because of my wounding, I was really using the attachment relationship to help my own regulation with co-regulation. Mm -hmm. And so that's what would allow me to stay regulated or to feel okay. And so if that attachment ruptured, if there was conflict and it didn't feel stable, I no longer had that co-regulation and without it, food suddenly would feel very threatening because I didn't feel able to regulate my own feelings and affect on my own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a, a balance, right? Like we want to be able to co-regulate, but also we have to self-regulate and like finding that balance. Yeah. And noticing, I think, um, yeah, that was my sign of like, where I first realized like my, how, how this, my ability to eat is really connected to, if, because at that time I wasn't able to really self-regulate enough. Mm -hmm. I was really overwhelmed by everything happening inside of me and um, that when I didn't have that extra support because of my wounding and food felt very threatening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. it makes so much sense. And again, I can relate a lot. Um, and I think one reason, and I really want to hear your thoughts on this, but I think I remember like going through therapy, my own therapy and my therapist asking me about trauma. And I think we have a distorted view on what trauma is Absolutely. because 
in my at the time I just thought that's like what happens when people go to war or you know like uh what is how did they used to call PTSD it was do you remember uh, like shell shock shell shock yeah so yeah. that's what I thought of but complex trauma and trauma in general is so much more can yes. you tell us a little bit about that and maybe some examples of complex trauma yeah um yeah, I, before I just want to say I, I relate to that as well. When I entered therapy, I was like, oh, I don't have much trauma. Things mm -hmm. have been hard, but that's not trauma. Yeah. Um, and then realized like, oh, most of my life was trauma. Mm -hmm. Trauma. Um, and untangling that. Um, so complex trauma is trauma that happens in relationship um, with attachment figures um, mm -hmm. in childhood mostly it can happen in adulthood as well but um, most of the frame is around childhood and it can also happen in relationship it's so it's trauma that's happening in relationship with others which is very different from shock trauma which is mm -hmm. a one-time event like a car accident mm -hmm. uh, there's no relationship at stake um, complex trauma can also happen with other outside sources it can um, any aspect of the community um, we have some level of attachment to and that will affect an individual um, but we often look at the the family system mm -hmm. and the difference is that um, there's a threat to the sense of self and safety in relationship when we're when something quote bad or scary happens with these attachment figures. So for shock trauma, if you're in a car accident, your system just goes into something that um, to survive, it's gonna go into fight or flight mode. And for relational trauma, there's a, a, something called a core dilemma that happens mm. where you're, the thing that would be natural to respond, which might be to run away or to fight, threatens the relationship. Mm -hmm. So what happens in between there is the sense of self um, shifts and the child will shame themselves to protect that relationship. And so mm -hmm. this com these complex experiences are activating the nervous system, creating disconnection in the body and also um, the, the child is unconsciously creating shame identifications in order to survive and feel safe within the, within the environment um, mm -hmm. and preserve the hope that the environment can change. Right. Oh my gosh. That gives me shivers, <laughs> right? Because it's so true. Like as children, the idea of the idea of like believing our caregivers are harming us or holding on to that truth is so much scarier in some instances than putting the blame on ourselves and like internalizing the shame and trying to still make, still be accepted and loved and nurtured as a child. Yeah, it's um, very psychologically threatening for a child to take in that their caregivers are harming them even if it's subtle that mm. they're not 
fully emotionally and possibly physically safe. Mm -hmm. They're dependent on their caregivers and um, it would be intolerable to recognize that they're not safe. Exactly. Mm. It also kind of gives us like an element of control. Like if I can put the, the shame on myself and the blame on myself, then that's something I can kind of control and beat myself up for maybe with food. Yeah. It's something, it preserves the hope that the relationship can get better. Yeah. If, uh, if the child puts was, were to recognize like that the parent is flawed, they have no control of that changing. Um, and that is very scary. Mm -hmm. so then they can change and there's hope that that relationship will get better. Totally. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Um, how do you see this impacting someone's relationship with food and body? Um, there's a lot of ways that this impacts relationship with food and body. I, um, I wrote them some down, so I'm going to just yeah. my list a little bit. So one of the things that happens is that if there's, um, if there's what's known as connection trauma in the, the first like early years, definitely that first year. Mm -hmm. um, so a baby's, babies have no control of their affect, like mm -hmm. affect very overwhelming. And when they feel anything, you know, they just cry mm -hmm. and the adult will come and soothe them and hold them. And that's how they get their nervous system soothed. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot that's happening there. So the nervous system is, is soothing the baby. It makes it tolerable for the baby to stay embodied. Mm -hmm. It's also taking in that soothing from the parent and the, their brain, which is the um, 75% of our brain develops after birth. So there's a mm -hmm. lot happening there is, is really taking in that soothing and, and processing it to help it learn how to self-soothe. Mm -hmm. And so when, if that's not happening, when it needs to be happening, um, when a baby is crying and they're not getting the attention and soothing that they're needing, um, there's a few things that happen. One is they will disconnect from um, their bodies. So they will, they will dissociate because it's intolerable to stay inside with all of that affect happening. And um, this early disconnection will affect them later in life. And a lot of eating disorders is a disconnection from their bodies. Mm -hmm. And then this other piece is that they're not getting that nurturance that's teaching them, giving them the resources to self-soothe. Mm -hmm. And so without that later, we can see that and like severe anorexia where eating becomes so scary yeah, because they, their brain actually didn't create those neural networks of self-soothing and the food is activating that affect inside of them. Mm -hmm. um, so that's like the first stage there that can have an impact on eating disorders. And then um, as the baby gets older and there's, if there's attunement, um, misattunements that are experienced, the child will shame themselves that their needs are bad. Mm -hmm. Like and if it's intermittent attunement, sort of? 
inner yeah intermittent attunement or um if there's any neglect um and this can be emotional attunement or physical needs mm -hmm. uh, that um yeah that i'm bad for having means mm -hmm. and eating is a form of nurturance it's a form of self-care and yeah. so by eating um, if someone really thinks, feels, and has that, so that shame becomes a survival strategy to protect against that loss of attachment. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to feed and nurture oneself um, would be going against that shame that they don't deserve to have their needs met or right. they're, they're, um, they're bad for having needs. And so the eating then becomes threatening to to that shame identification and mm -hmm. being themselves. Yeah, that's making me think a lot about um, some of my work with clients and also my own experience of like when you start trying to eat quote unquote normally in recovery, I remember feeling so embarrassed like eating in front of others. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that had to do with people are seeing that I have needs, you know, like I'm honoring my needs in front of people. Like it just felt so uncomfortable. Absolutely. Yeah. That makes mm -hmm. so much sense. And I, I can personally relate to that. And, um, and I witnessed other others with that as well, that yeah, there's, uh, when there's that wounding that there's something wrong with your needs then it feels it feels almost like you're naked to yeah other people and be acknowledging that you do have needs mm -hmm. yeah. exactly and I think a lot of times in the eating disorder field it's common to just think that's like social anxiety which it definitely can be a part of that but um, I think looking deeper like we were talking about and like well what is this really representing to the client Mm -hmm. what does this mean right it's not just eating with a group of recovery buddies it's like <laughs> honoring and accepting that yeah we have needs mm -hmm. not like robots with no needs yeah and then the the um to the discomfort of nurturing yourself when you when someone has learned that there's that they're bad if they take care of themselves mm -hmm. giving that self-love can feel so uncomfortable and so um disorienting almost mm -hmm. acknowledging that this nurturance that they haven't received that to give it to themselves is so foreign right comfortable too Absolutely. It's a really vulnerable thing, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so what are some of the challenges, if we haven't already named them, <laughs> um, any other challenges you see in recovering from complex trauma and eating disorders? Yes, I think a big one is diet culture that we haven't named. Mm -hmm. um, so diet culture is traumatic in itself. Um, it 
you know, it is teaching everybody, but especially young children that, and the prepubescent and adolescent age um, youth, that their bodies need to look a very specific way to belong in society mm -hmm. and to be loved. And that's, um, that's very traumatic. Absolutely. And then when we um, combine that, if diet culture is present within the family and being pressed specifically within family, that in order to be accepted and loved in, in the family, that your body has to look a certain way, um, that creates a lot of shame that and fear, real fear that if they gain weight, they're not going to be loved and they're not going to be lovable and they're mm -hmm. not going to belong. Um, and belonging is a human need. And yes. I, I find diet culture and challenging diet culture and in individuals that is, that takes time, <laughs> a lot of unlearning. Mm -hmm. That threat is so strong that um that threat of loss of connection um and their that they've tied their worth so tightly to the way their body looks as a way to survive and um, as a way to maintain connection mm -hmm. agreed it's almost like diet culture and the eating disorder itself becomes that attachment figure sort of like if mm -hmm. i can get my needs met by proving that I'm like good enough with my body mm. um it takes of course we can never be like truly securely attached to these things but I think it when we don't have that secure attachment in our home then of course we're going to look for it in other ways or look for other ways to define our worth um mm -hmm. and so it's really scary how harmful diet culture is and how prevalent it is Mm -hmm. is really preying on vulnerable people and it affects um peer relationships a lot too so mm -hmm. you know it's a, if it's in the home that's definitely impacting it but even if it's not if um you know a kid in middle school high school is experiencing either explicit rejection for their body or um experiencing the gossip and other people and their friends talking badly and critical about their own bodies and other people's bodies. Um, it will feel very threatening um, to allow their bodies to be how they naturally are and their set weight um, and not fit into the diet culture for fear of not fitting in with peers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm curious if you um, see this differently, but I found that if that's if that's only happening with peers, typically it's more disordered eating, and that the really deep eating disorder comes much more from the younger attachment um, complex trauma. Mm -hmm. That all of it layers on each other. Yeah, yeah. I would totally agree with that, um, and I would say that recovery outcomes based on just like. I, I don't really have any current research to back this up, but I'm sure it would. But just from like my clinical anecdotal data, like recovery is much, I guess, smoother and has more of like a timeline um, 
when there is secure attachment figures in oh, yeah. a client's environment. Mm -hmm. um, because yeah, that's really like the base we all need to do any kind of healing. Absolutely. And if I, as I reflect on my own journey, as I was, you know, healing, losing that, even temporarily, that, that attachment, that secure attachment, secure, I guess, maybe not so secure, but the attachment that was allowing me to co-regulate, mm -hmm. um, instantly put me back into a state of, of fight or flight in my body, where I couldn't, I couldn't eat the food was very threatening mm -hmm. and so with clients it is very hard to get them into a place where they feel safe enough to and how do I say this to challenge to make contact with what what's underneath when mm -hmm. they start eating and all of the emotions um the co-regulation and security of those attachment relationships definitely help. Mm -hmm. I agree. Mm -hmm. And I guess to provide hope for anyone listening that doesn't have any secure attachments in their life, I think it's important to talk about how therapy can do that, right? Like my therapist back in the day was my very first secure attachment. And that was so healing. I think that's one of the biggest gifts we can offer clients in therapy is regardless of any model we're using, it's like having that relationship be a safe and secure place that they can rely on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's exactly where my mind was going as I was saying that was the, the therapeutic relationship has this ability to, yeah, as you're saying, to be a secure relationship and, and really be healing to give a client an experience of that, mm -hmm. as well as to help them use that safety um to 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 heal the eating disorder mm -hmm. absolutely i think that was the biggest thing that helped me in my own recovery honestly it was i can't think back and think of any like fancy intervention my therapist used i think it was just the secure attachment we formed and the power of that right it becomes like just like it's supposed to when we're children, the secure attachment with our caregivers is supposed to be kind of like our foundation for mm -hmm. safely exploring the world and figuring out who we are. Yeah. But we can do that later in life, obviously not ideal, but I think that's more common than not. Like, mm -hmm. um, it's not that common where both parents are just like fully attuned to their children and so I guess, yeah, also to provide help for anyone listening that it, just because you didn't get that doesn't mean it's not capable of happening now. Um, Cause our brains do rewire, our brain does rewire. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I'm curious, I know you use the NARM model. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that and um, how it might help with some of this stuff? Yeah, um, so the NARM, NARM stands for the Neuroaffective Relational Model, um, which is specifically a modality created to help clients heal complex trauma. It was developed by Dr. Lawrence Heller. Um, and yeah, the approach uses the theory that complex trauma creates these certain survival strategies that are life-saving as children and then get in the way and create distress and challenge as adults. 
Mm. Um, and I, I view eating disorders as a combination of, of these different survival strategies that did allow for, um, for survival um, and are now getting in the way. And so through NARM, um, yeah, it's a combination of mindfulness and relational therapy. So how we are just talking about that importance of the therapeutic relationship and somatic awareness um, to help clients heal the complex trauma. I didn't know that was written by, you said, France, did you say Francine Well, Heller? No, no, Dr. Lawrence Heller. Heller. I think I read a book by her. It's a, it's a, or him. Okay, then someone else in the attachment world. (laughs) It's a book he wrote called Healing Developmental Trauma. Okay. Which is great. Uh, It's, that's how I actually got into the NARM work is I read that book. Okay. One more. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Sorry to to cut you off. I just got excited there. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, um, yeah, I, uh, the model, um, it, at, it's a, there's a lot to the model. It's hard to summarize, um, but at its core, it brings attention to the client's agency, which is something that a child doesn't have. Um, so when a child is shaming themselves, they don't have agency against that. That's what they have to do to survive that interaction. Mm-hmm. And as adults, when we shame ourselves, it's happening unconsciously because we've always done it, but there is agency in those moments. And mm-hmm. so this model really takes a look at helping clients get in touch with their agency and then um, this identifying from these shame identifications and processing all the emotions that come up as that happens. Mm. With a lot of emotion that gets stuck when the child shames themselves, there's a lot they're not allowing themselves to feel. And so as we disidentify from the shame, all those feelings are gonna come up and processing what those are allows clients to distance themselves from the shame. Mm-hmm. And then as you distance from the shame, there's more space for a healthy relationship with food and body and coming mm-hmm. into contact with this authentic self. Yeah, that's so beautifully said. Um, so it really gets to that like core dilemma we were talking about mm-hmm. in the beginning, right? Yeah. Do you normally see that? Um, Cause there's this challenge in the eating disorder field, right? Of like stabilizing the eating disorder enough to do trauma work, but then oftentimes we can't really get through recovery without doing the trauma work. So (laughs) trauma in the, in the eating disorder, um, recovery. Absolutely. I, there is a degree of stabilization that is necessary. Um, they need to be medically stable. Um, and Um, cause then all that, like, I'm thinking about neuroplasticity, like it's, you're chronically undernourished and you're not yet to a point where you're nourished, then neuroplasticity isn't really going to happen at least as effectively. Yes, absolutely. And I, that's a, it's a really great, great point. And, um, 
yeah, capacity is really lower when there's when someone's undernourished. So I do absolutely think there's um, what's the word I'm looking for, like uh, it can be helpful for a client to if they are really struggling with being sort of to go through treatment to stabilize. Mm -hmm. um, where they maybe are more giving coping strategies that aren't going to be long-term sustainable. But once they have those strategies to cope, then we can go into the more deeper trauma work, mm -hmm. help them um, to help them do that, that healing so that it becomes sustainable. Mm -hmm. It does really depend on the client. Um, and their capacity there too, because some sometimes um, support is a really important piece too, that if we're gonna go into this work um, and it's, if it's gonna bring up a lot of emotion, we don't want to further destabilize and then a coping strategy for the emotion could be to go back into the eating disorder and we want mm -hmm. to that from happening. And so, um, yeah, having a certain level of stability is definitely helpful. Um, mm -hmm. I wish there were more treatment centers that held both of of helping clients stabilize and also concurrently working through the attachment wounding of this complex trauma. Um, I unfortunately haven't found too many that do that. It feels mostly like coping strategies and tools. Mm -hmm. um, That's what insurance wants to see. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. yeah. and um, yeah, because sometimes it, I don't know that it necessarily has to be separate. And if, if someone is very malnourished, I do think they do need um, to be more nourished before they can start the deep work. But other than that, it doesn't necessarily have to be separate, but sometimes there's just a need for more holding mm -hmm. support. And it's, that's um, the challenge of, mm -hmm. of this work when, um, in like a private practice setting. Totally. Yeah, I agree. It is a challenge. And I think it's unrealistic to expect clients to perfectly be eating three meals and three snacks before we get into any attachment trauma stuff. Right. But it's like, can we do the bare minimum to keep you stable and inch kind of in towards attachment trauma stuff and see how it goes. And maybe we have to readjust, but but yeah, like refusing to address it um, until recovery is like perfectly stable just is not realistic. And I think is probably one reason why there's such a high rate of like going back into treatment centers because they're not getting to the root of it often. And of course, time limitations and it's not even like the individual people there. It's not their fault, but it's the system, right? Of Yes, there's a... I think there's there's two issues that I see. There's absolutely a systems issue. There's um, uh, the insurance issue um, yeah. that is 
a struggle all around. Um, and insurance wants them in and out as fast as possible. So, you know, if they seem like they're doing better, they're going to stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, insurance will stop paying. I do think there's um, room for growth in the overall um, education and training of eating disorder therapists. I mm-hmm. have found quite a bit that there's a disconnect between this connection of complex trauma and eating disorders where therapists will say, well, sometimes eating disorders are symptoms of trauma, but not always. And I see it very clearly as always. Mm -hmm. We don't always know what it is. We don't know their history. They might not remember, but I do think um, that eating disorders and there's other factors that might make them more susceptible. There are hereditary issue uh, links and all of that, but mm-hmm. that at the root, I hope that as a therapeutic psychotherapist community that we can also start holding, even if the system won't allow us to like officially address it in treatment, to know that that's what's underneath. Mm-hmm. I hope. I agree. I'm right there with you. And I agree. Like I've never met, I've never worked with a client that didn't have some kind of trauma and Mm -hmm. maybe it wasn't directly from caregivers, but there's so many ways. Like I'm thinking of like birth trauma too, when babies are like taken from their mom because of medical reasons, that wasn't necessarily the mom's choice. Right. And, and it can still cause like attachment trauma mm-hmm. um, or yeah. systemic trauma that we are all living in. Like we talked about diet culture. Yeah. Also living in a racist world and sexist okay. and all the isms, that's all trauma. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then if it's getting, if there's any other like disconnection from body or shame, a uh, history of acting inwards, um, when experiencing trauma, it's going to impact it can very much go into an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And, and I do want to highlight that trauma doesn't always mean that the parents did something horrific. Yeah. And a lot of times um, there's parents have unrealistic expectations. They need to work. They need to do all the things to take care and the child might not be getting the connection they needed or the attunement they needed. And it's not from a lack of care or love of the parents, but it isn't logistically possible for it Mm -hmm. all to happen. And these misattunements and the child may experience it as trauma, but that doesn't mean that the parents weren't loving and weren't doing everything they could. And I also hold, you know, except for extreme abuse in general parents are always doing the best they can mm-hmm. they we don't do a good job in society of teaching parents how to be parents there's a mm-hmm. lot of expectations being a parent is a full-time job it's really hard yeah so that and they're human they have their own wounds they have their own insecurities and capacities and so even when something does happen in direct relationship to the parent doesn't mean it was malicious, right? That it was um, that the parent didn't love the kid. Mm-hmm. It it's just the parent wasn't able to give the kid what the kid needed mm-hmm. in, the, 
and it negatively impacted the kid. And then we work with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because there's so many external factors, like just the fact that we are all expected to work and raise children. It's ridiculous. So ridiculous. And if you don't have a certain level of privilege and you don't, and you have, you're in a lower income family where your parent works multiple jobs, well, that is just going to limit the time that you have for emotional attunement because you're so busy getting those basic survival, like food Mm. and water and shelter needs met. Absolutely. And then in the moments when it's possible, the parent's exhausted. Yeah. Um, And so it's still not the ideal um, connection that might be happening there. Mm -hmm. It is, um, I think a lot of our attachment and complex trauma wounds are systemic failures Mm -hmm. that um, impact impact the kids as they impact the whole family system. Mm -hmm. So if if we can all just have secure attachments, the world would be a better place. and take care of each other I mean there are systemic issues of you know our economy and economy system and Mm -hmm. um and yeah all the levels of different oppression that people are facing it trickles down into the family system yeah absolutely um and I guess to quell parents anxiety if anyone's listening um I was reading this morning I've been reading the power of attachment And that's why the last name of the author is Heller. So that's why I was like, oh, maybe it's, yeah, I forget the first name. But um, there was research that was done that said like parents, it's not that we have to be like perfectly attuned all the time, but I think that like, it's like good enough attunement. And the researchers found that that means like 30% of the time, can you be available and attuned? And that sounds pretty low to me, but much more sustainable than thinking we have to be there for like 95% of that, you know, because it's just unrealistic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a a part of the child's healthy development is being able to hold on to those moments of healthy attunement so that when the parent is misattuned, that they aren't shaming themselves. They're just holding on to the memory of the parent being attuned and they Mm. That makes so much sense because I think even when we can imagine our secure attachment figures, mm-hmm. it brings on that like relaxed, secure feeling in our body. Mm-hmm. And so if we have those memories, then then yeah, that it helps us throughout life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and we all have our own our own attachment woundings. Then do can impact kids. So the more we're doing the work on ourselves to be aware of what we didn't get and then how that shows up um, Mm -hmm. in ourselves, then we can provide it for our kids. Absolutely. This is such a good conversation, Becca. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and just really important perspective on eating disorder recovery with complex trauma. Um, Could you tell listeners a little bit about where they can find you in, in case they wanna follow up with your work? Absolutely. So I am on Instagram, which is my name, Rebecca underscore Prolman, spelled P-R-O-L-M-A-N. And I have a website at RebeccaProlmanTherapy.com.
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here and hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.